Five seconds. What's something you need to work on as a leader? Not seven things, one thing. For me, irritation bubbling up to the surface when plans keep getting derailed is something I need to work on. Now, keeping that thing in mind that you need to work on, what's something you can do to practice getting better at that thing? Now, even if you answered, I don't know, to both questions, this episode has an answer for you, and it'll make us all better leaders at home and at work. Welcome to the Impact of Leadership podcast, where we believe that no one drifts into excellence. I'm your host, Steve Shear, and today's episode is about awareness. Now, we move quickly in life, sometimes way too quickly. I know that I do. And we all know that we shouldn't switch lanes while driving a car 85 miles an hour without checking the blind spots. A crash will eventually happen. But for some reason, we tend to rationalize doing this very same thing in our lives, full steam ahead, never checking for blind spots, just hoping the inevitable relational wreck doesn't happen before we get to our goal. Errol Dobler is my guest today. He's a former Navy SEAL and FBI special agent, founder of a leadership consulting firm, and if that's not enough, a certified Wim Hof instructor. And if you're unfamiliar with Wim Hof, we get into it in this episode of who that is and what his method is. So don't worry, you're going to enjoy it. Errol gives a lot of practical content and is a super interesting guy. At the end, I'll have an unexpected action item from this discussion that we all can try. But let's just jump into it as Errol starts walking us through his leadership progression with the SEALs and FBI. College, I went to the United States Naval Academy, graduated way back in 1991. From the Naval Academy, you pick your service selection, and I wanted to be a Navy SEAL coming out of the Naval Academy, but my class rank was not high enough. There was only a select number of billets. So I ended up on a United States ship, the USS Monongahela, for a couple of years. So I was a surface warfare officer before I put in for a lateral transfer, they call it in, in the Navy, uh, to the Special Warfare Community, which, is, which are the SEAL teams. And that was in 1993. And I was with SEAL Team 4 as an assistant platoon commander and SEAL Team 1 as a platoon commander. And that's where I got injured and medically discharged. I had fully intended on spending my career as a Navy SEAL because I loved it, but it wasn't meant to be. So I spent a few years in the private sector in sales, which I loved. I was in the city on a sales call, a big sales meeting on 9-11-2001 and uh, lost my brother-in-law in the World Trade Center. And that event, like most people who, especially most people who are in the city and everywhere, you know, across the world, the United States, you know, there were some real trajectory changes. And that's when I decided I kind of need to get back into the fight, so to speak, for lack of a better term. So I applied to the typical agencies and ended up going with the FBI. And I spent 13 years in the FBI working primarily counterterrorism operations out of the New York City office. But I also did some, some gang work and some Russian organized crime. And I spent the last couple of years of my career in the Atlantic City, New Jersey office, but primarily New York City, counterterrorism, international terrorism operations. And, and then I started uh, Leader 193. I had a little bit of frustration with the leadership in the FBI, even though I loved being a special agent for the FBI. And I just decided it was time to move on and start my own thing. And my passion is definitely leadership and helping people find the 
kind of the best versions of themselves, if you will. And that's where I am today. And, and I haven't looked back and I haven't regretted one move. Okay. So uh, first of all, where do, what is leader 193? What is the 193 represent? Yeah, the 193 is my Navy SEAL um, Hell Week training class. So I was in, in, in leader, I was in class 193 during Hell Week. I ended up graduating with class 194. Um, but, you know, that 193, that Hell Week class was pretty special. We started, Hell Week is pretty early in the six-month training phase. It's like week four or five. That's where you get those first four or five weeks is where you get almost 100% of your quitters. And, you know, the, the attrition rate's about 70% in the whole thing. So we had, we started our class with about 200, right? Don't quote me on the numbers. And we ended Hell Week with about 10. And wow. so, you know, it was just a constant flow of people quitting. It was a winter class. It was so, the weather was so bad. So it's just kind of paying homage to that, you know, unique time in my life. Mm-hmm. And at the risk of, uh, of being that guy who, who has seen too many movies, uh, what don't people, you know, like me understand when it comes to the Navy SEALs? Well, yeah, it's hard to say these days, right? Because there's a lot of stuff out there. You know, one of the things I think when you get an organization like that, and, and also our sister organizations, you know, the uh, Special Operations Forces, the Green Berets, Delta, um, and the like, you know, it's a very physical environment, right? It's it's very demanding physically. There's a lot of courage that goes into it and things like that. And I think people see that. I think what they don't see is the amount of attention to detail that's put into everything we do from planning to equipment. Um, I don't think they see how much we really focus on how to conduct yourself as an individual in stressful situations, the emotional awareness that it takes to really be a great operator. Those are the things that we spend a lot of time on. Anybody can learn how to jump on out of an airplane. Anybody can learn how to shoot. Not everybody has the discipline to go through a thorough planning process, to have the courage to try new ideas, to be in tune to our emotional selves, to make sure that we are our best selves out on the battlefield. I think those are some of the things that people don't see. Uh, you've got over you know 20 combined years as a Navy SEAL, uh, FBI special agent. So jumping into the deep end of this thing, in your experience, what things separate effective leadership from a failure of leadership and, and feel free to share any stories if you, if you want. Um, I'm really intrigued to hear your answer to that. Yeah, well, for sure. I've got nothing but stories now, right? That's kind of what I do, right? I tell stories based around my leadership um, process, but I would say a general awareness is, is what separates the great leaders from everybody else. And it's awareness around everything. It's awareness around emotions. It's awareness around other people's emotions. It's awareness around process. Uh, it's awareness around what's working and what's not working. It's an awareness around your reactions to things. It's an awareness around everything. If leadership is nothing else, it is an awareness around what's happening and who it's happening to so you can make the best leadership decision you can with the information at hand. So many leadership decisions are made without all the information that's available to them, right? We, can all, we don't always have all the information, but if we just practice awareness in everything we do, not day to day, not week to week, not year to year, 
I'm talking interaction to interaction, moving from one room to another, moving from one conversation to another, moving from one piece of paper to another, one task to another. If we have awareness around everything, we're going to make good leadership decisions. And, and there's just a million stories that I can reflect on, but a few come to mind. Um, one was, and, and I mentioned this in the book, in the SEAL teams, you know, I had forgotten during a test evaluation of an operation, I forgot to brief the frequency in the formal brief that we'd be using on the radio. We failed. And they didn't tell us that we failed until after like the two or three day operation. And it was devastating because that was there. I mean, there was just absolutely nobody else's fault except mine. And when you fail something like that, you, you really should get fired. And that's what I was expecting. The commanding officer came in and, you know, he just kind of said, what happened? And I just told him, I said, nothing happened. It's my fault. It was my F up and that's it. And, and I deserve whatever, whatever happens. And his awareness around my immediate desire to take full responsibility for it. He saw that I was humiliated. He saw I was embarrassed. He saw that I was disappointed, that I had let my platoon down, that I had let him down. And there was just nothing he was ever going to say to make things worse, right? And again, firing me wasn't going to make it worse because I was fully expected that that was what was going to happen. But what he had was a full situational awareness, right? He saw all of these things. It wasn't a linear pass-fail decision. Therefore, these are the consequences. And I think as he looked at me and looked at everything, all the, all the circumstances surrounding him, he said, all right, go do it again. And I didn't know if he meant the brief, what he meant. So, you know, I asked him, and he goes, no, the whole thing. He goes, you'll have a new scenario for you in about an hour. And we, we hadn't slept in days, but believe me, we took full advantage of that. So, I mean, that's an example, I think, of awareness. Yep. And that one has always stood out to me. There's, there's one in the FBI. You know, again, I, I had some struggles with the general leadership in the FBI, but some of the best leaders I've ever seen and worked for were in the FBI. That just so happens they were outliers. But I remember when I moved from um, terrorism to criminal work, and you'd think they're kind of one and the same, but there's some, there's some very distinct differences in how you operate one of those cases. And in, in, in terrorism investigations and intelligence operations, you are documenting everything. Because it's intelligence. You want everybody to see every word, every thought. And it's not that way in your kind of general communications for the file and criminal. It's not that you're leaving things out. It's just that the level of detail is different. And, you know, I just remember that boss coming out to me and saying, Errol, you know, we do things a little differently on this side. He goes, I know you know all these things. I trust you. Just document what's required you know, to f fulfill the requirements to send things to the U.S. Attorney's Office, right? And it was, it just was an awareness. It was an awareness that I was an experienced um, investigator, but not so experienced here. And he just made me feel good about that based on all the things that I was doing very well. And just kind of telling me, I trust you. You don't have to do it this way anymore. We do it kind of this way. And, and that's a small example, but it made me feel good, right? And, and that's, you know, that's a couple of quick examples of awareness that, that really stood out to me over time. It's a meaningful example of just steering somebody. And I appreciate that. So there's a couple of terms that uh, I'd love for you to, to, to help us with. Um, so special agent and Navy SEAL, 
bring certain images to mind for me and assumptions uh, that basically, you know, that you're superhuman, <laughs> basically, <laughs> which I know I've listened to enough interviews with you and I, I loved the book, as I mentioned before, you, you are very real and raw about your failures and shortcomings. So I know that's not true. Uh, but then I learn through the book and through other interviews that you're you're certified as a Wim Hof instructor, and now I know that you're indestructible. So <laughs> <laughs> before we move on, uh, so intriguing. I mean, as if your story wasn't intriguing enough. Before we move on, what is the Wim Hof method, and what what would you say about that for people that are not familiar with it? Well, the first thing is if they're not familiar with it. Go to WimHoffMethod.com, Google Wim Hof. That's his name, uh, W-I-M-H-O-F. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's his method. He is a he is from the Netherlands, and essentially he has developed a process backed by science because he doesn't do anything without a team of scientists around him anymore. Shows how we can manipulate and influence our autonomic nervous system and our innate immune system. These are things that scientists previously said cannot be cannot be manipulated, but they can't be influenced because they're autonomic. Um, and Wim Hof has shown that we can. Now, why is that significant? It's significant for so many reasons. Basically, the Wim Hof method has three pillars, mindset and or meditation, right? We keep kind of uh, changing the terminology around that, but mindset or meditation, cold exposure and breathing. And through these areas, uh, Wim Hof has shown, and now, you know, I, I am a disciple and a certified instructor of his. I, I was taught directly by him. He doesn't, and that, I'm pretty fortunate about that because he's no longer that much in the weeds. He's got all of his very capable senior instructors doing the training. But he was, you know, the big experiment is what they call the endotoxin experiment. And what he was saying to people was, I can control my innate immune system. They put him to the test. They injected him with this endotoxin, which is essentially a dead virus, but the body doesn't see it as that. The body sees it as uh, as an invader. And just through breathing and mindset, he was able to fight off the effects of that endotoxin. Now, what does that mean, fight off the effects? Basically, he was able to dampen the inflammation response, but his immune system was still humming along. So while we had, while he had that foreign invader, see virus, see coronavirus, right? It's, it's very, more applicable today than it's ever been. Um, he was able to fight off the effects of it without the symptoms, without the fever, without the chills, without the headache, uh, all, without the sweats, all the things that go along with that. And then they did a formal study, one that could, you know, have the scientists have to do with control group and test group I won't go through the whole study, but basically 12 people did not do the Wim Hof method before getting injected at, with an endotoxin. 12 people did do the Wim Hof method. They only practiced it for about a week. And those 12 people who did the Wim Hof method were able to effectively fight off the effects of the endotoxin. And all the people who didn't suffered for science. They all got sick. So it is basically using your own breath and nature to strengthen your physiology. Simple as that. Okay. Now I use it as a leadership tool for some of my leadership stuff, which we can get into, but that's, that's the summation. And it's probably a little long around the Wim Hof method. No, it's good. And and I, um, I do have intention of tying this all together um, as uh, trying to pay homage to how you do it in the book. Um, Cause that is a piece. It's not just intriguing for those of you listening in. It's not just cause it's an interesting thing. Uh, side note, 
if you do that Google search, there is a Vice documentary on Wim Hof and the Wim Hof method that I thought was well worth the 40 minutes or whatever. Um, and uh, they do show parts of that where he's in the hospital getting injected with that, yeah. uh, that virus. And it's unreal. He's, he's done another one recently. It's about 42 minutes that's of the same spirit, but he tried a few new things. So uh, yeah, I encourage anybody to go out and just kind of learn a little bit more about it. And the Vice documentary is a great place to start. I'd love to zoom in on the book. Um, a few things stood out to me. I've already mentioned a few uh, or a couple already, but the, the title, I, I just wanted to talk about the title for a second. So the process, art, and science of leadership, how leaders inspire confidence and clarity in combat, in the boardroom, and at the kitchen table. So after that, I'd like to talk more about the emotion that was stood out to me. So first, if you wouldn't mind, tell us about the title and then the significance of emotion when it comes to leadership. The title is a very practical title. You know, when I wrote this book, I meant for it to be fairly academic. Um, I, I didn't even have any stories in it initially. What I wanted was the reaction that you had towards it, just very methodical. And when I say the process, art and science, my, I have developed a leadership process that's based on five elements. Okay. And if you follow these elements in the form of a process, I promise you, I, that is my guarantee. There is no leadership challenge that you won't find the answer to inside of one of these processes. That's the first part. So I believe, I believe in process. I believe you need process because without process, you cannot determine where things went right, where things went wrong, what's repeatable, where do you need to make adjustments for the next time? And that goes with process of thought, process of leadership. So that's the first part. So we can agree, let's agree for argument's sake, that these five elements of the process, everybody needs to account for, okay? Inside of each one of those elements, and you, you mentioned the first one, emotional awareness and recognition, that's where it all starts. So we'll kind of stay with that. That's going to be different for everybody. So we'll all agree we need to have emotional awareness and recognition for the reasons that it sounds like we're going to discuss. But which emotions affect me and affect you will be different. How they affect us will be different. The adjustments we need to make based on those emotions will be different. There is an art inside of each one of those elements that is unique to all of us. The reason I like my process as opposed to just saying, do these things, is because these things may not apply to you. And if they don't, then we've wasted our time. Okay, but whereas if we say, recognize emotional awareness and recognition, okay, have that always front and center, and now I've got to decide which emotions are the ones I need to focus on, okay? Down the line is something called guidelines for behavior. It's kind of where the rubber meets the road, right? How are we going to behave separate from our widget, right? If we didn't, if we didn't change the way we made, marketed, or sold our widget, but behaved in these ways, would we get better at everything we do? Okay, let's all agree we need to establish those behaviors for ourselves. But let's also understand those behaviors are going to be based on the awareness that we execute in the first couple elements of my process. Okay, and they are going to be unique to us, to what we found we need. So it's easy for me to say to somebody, look, as a leader, you need to show courage and you need to prioritize things. Well, that is absolutely accurate. But if you already do those two things, me telling you that means nothing. I've added no value to you, right? 
But there's some other things that are deep and in, 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 the, in the weeds somewhere that you don't know about until you have that awareness. So that's the art behind it, the science. When I put this process together, it is wholly based on my experiences. There's no theory in this. There's not one thing that I have in my process and the reasons behind it that are theoretical. It's all in blood, sweat, and tears, literally. When I put this together, at about the same time, I started to become fascinated with Joe Dispenza and his work around how the mind, how the brain rewires itself. And what I came to realize was the way the brain, the brain rewires itself, the, the process that it goes through mirrors my leadership process, or should I say my leadership process mirrors how the brain goes through literally the change, the rewiring. And so I added that in and basically saying, look, here's the science behind my leadership process. It is more, it's more than what I think works. There's a science behind it to make real behavioral change in our lives. So that's, that's the, uh, you know, that's the genesis of the title, mm-hmm. the in combat, in the boardroom table, uh, in the boardroom and at the kitchen table, the leadership process remains the same everywhere. If you want to be, if you're bringing your best self to bear, you do it the same way in every single aspect of our lives. I use combat because combat is a great elicitor towards the visual, right? It, it hits you in the face. If I can do these things while I'm getting shot at, I and, and I can certainly tell you how they work when you're talking to your five-year-old daughter, right? That's that's powerful. That's impact. So that's how I kind of use it because it's the same leadership behaviors everywhere. That That is uh, one of the reasons that my interest was piqued, not just because of the words in the title, but because of the implications of them. Meaning I don't want to just be known as a great leader at work. It, it applies in the boardroom and the kitchen table. Um, so that is very, very helpful. And the acronym should be spoken about as well, as far as SMAC. That's right. The planning process. That the, the planning process is is you know the one of the elements to the leadership my leadership process. Mm-hmm. And and I may I always make it clear it's a it's it's a straight ripoff. It, it's the process that's used in the military. It's what we use in the SEAL teams. I watered it down a little bit, um, you know, modified it to make it very very simple, but. You know, that's that's where I got it from. And, and if you follow the elements of the planning process, which so many people don't do. And again, we talk about in combat, in the boardroom and at the kitchen table. If you want an outcome, you have to have a plan. And I've often had people tell me, so what are you saying? When I, or ask me, when I leave the room and I go talk to my wife, I need a plan. That seems a little impersonal. My response is simply this. You bringing thought and your best intention to an interaction is impersonal. Hmm. That sounds pretty awesome to me. That sounds like I'm giving everything I have to make sure that interaction, whether it's 30 seconds or three hours is absolutely the best interaction that I can bring to bear. And if I have to spend a couple minutes to think about it, I'm feeling like the person on the receiving end is really going to appreciate that. And that perspective changes changes things a lot. It, there's, um, you know, look, I've been doing this for a little while now, so you get better. You, your message your message gets a little smoother and, and it resonates. And initially it was, people felt it was very robotic, right? And especially the word process. Oh my God, process. You know, you military people. Uh, but when you start explaining it in those terms, 
mm-hmm. like a preparation for an interaction with my wife, with my five-year-old daughter. Give it some thought. What is the situation, right? What is happening here that is requiring a need to have an interaction, right? Sometimes we don't need interaction. What do I want to accomplish in that interaction? That matters. I want to make my daughter feel good about herself because my situational awareness shows me that she's feeling a little down. So my mission is to make her laugh. My mission is to understand why she's upset. I ha- If you don't define your mission when you're doing something, what are you doing? You're just acting. You're just random. And then your results will be random. And then how do you know if it worked or not? You know, so uh, the planning process is an integral part. Uh, people really jump onto it because mostly because they realize how little planning they actually do. Mm. One of my favorite quotes uh, in in the book, you'll know what I'm talking about when I start saying it, but your culture is not what you say it is. Your culture is what you do. Um, it ties into several things you've already outlined. Could you riff on that just for a minute? Culture is 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 such an overused term or it's been bastardized so much and it's fine. I don't you know, people should use the word culture because it's an important word. But in my mind, right, the labels you put on the things you do are fine. And that's where people generally go. We have a culture of respect. We have a culture of innovation. We have a culture of whatever. And that's all cool. But if you can't tell me what are the things you do that create innovation, tell me what the things you do that create respect. Because they'll be different. There's a lot of things you can do to show people respect, to have a respectful environment. But if you can't tell me what they are specifically, but you're still claiming you have a culture of respect, then you don't have a culture of respect. You have a meaningless label, okay? So we have to be able to define the things that we do and then feel free to put a label on it. When I hear business leaders talk about um, why they might fire somebody or why they may not hire somebody because they're not a cultural fit, and I say, fine, what's your culture? They may say it's something like innovation or you know, whatever it is. And I'll say, fine, how does that person not fit it? Well, they can't answer that because they haven't established the things that they're requiring people to do. Okay, well, so we talk about accountability. You can't hold someone accountable if you don't know what, if they don't know what they're supposed to be accountable to. If you're going to be an accountable to a culture, the things you do or how you behave, you would better make it clear. Here are the three behaviors that we focus on. Because if you have a couple of good behaviors, there's going to be a lot of good things that happen. So uh, yeah, that's those are the thoughts around culture for sure. It's what you do. It's not the labels you put on. Here's the point where I would love for you to tie the Wim Hof method and the things that we've been talking about as far as emotion and effective leadership in the boardroom at the kitchen table together. How, how, does, how does the Wim Hof method, your background as a SEAL and an FBI, tie together to effective leadership. Yeah, I use the Wim Hof method as what I just call an intellectual tool to practice my elements of the leadership process. So again, we, we, we'll stay on the first one with emotional awareness and recognition. Emotions drive actions, that, that we know, okay? And without the awareness of the very thing that's driving your action, you can, you can then say you're acting randomly, okay? If you don't have an awareness of what's driving you to act, then your actions are generally random. So if we have emotional awareness and recognition, then we will have at least a fighting chance of having control over how we act because we'll start to be able to make some decisions based on that. So I feel frustrated, okay, or I feel insecure, or I feel angry. 
How do I want to act based on that? Okay, generally speaking, so that, that's a that's a drill. That that is a habit. Okay, and it's a hard habit. Emotional awareness and recognition. So I say, okay, here's how we're going to use the Wim Hof method and specifically cold exposure to get you better at emotional awareness and recognition. So in the morning or whenever it is you decide to do it and you're about to step into an ice bath or a cold shower is just fine. Okay. And if your intention is to say, I want to recognize my emotions before, during, and after the cold, let me guarantee you something. Before you step into an ice bath or a cold shower, you are going to have an emotion and you're going to recognize it because it's just going to be in your face. Okay. What a beautiful tool, right? To be able to get in the habit of recognizing your emotions. It is a no lose proposition. I am big into meditation, as you can imagine as well, and mindfulness and things like that. But some days as we're lying down, sitting down and we're meditating and we're trying to be mindful, our mind wanders. We don't have our best sessions, right? And, and that's a habit. It's a practice and we get better. But some days we're off. You'll never be off in the ice bath because in order to, it's everything is just, like I said, in your face. So if your intention is emotion, you're not going to have a hard time recognizing your emotion because it's just going to be there. You're not going to have a hard time recognizing how you're feeling when you're in it because it's going to be there. It is absolutely foolproof. And then that has, then we go on to each step, right? How do you not survive, but thrive in the ice bath, right? You have to just, you have to have a behavior. You have to have a mindfulness, right? And we know from the science that if we are thinking about one thing, regardless of the stress that's coming in, in our environment, see the cold, okay, we can relax. Mm. So you can get into a 30 degree ice bath and you can be calm and not shivering if your behavior is correct. So again, it is a beautiful intellectual tool to allow us to deal with stress and recognize the most important parts of our being so we can continue to bring our best selves to bear. After I heard you walk through uh, cold exposure and ice bath, similar to what you just did, but in the book, um, my next three showers, I I did cold and it was horrible. <laughs> but the but the presence of mind, what you just said, when that cold water hits you, and do do you hype yourself up? Do you over exaggerate when you're in that cold? Do you are you screaming? Are you just trying to get through it? Or are you relaxing into it? I I can attest just on this very tiny little scale that I that I experienced. You can't escape it, and there is a reaction. And what you're going to find, Steve, is that that reaction to that type of stress, because it, it's, you know, your body sees it as a noxious event, right? Because mm -hmm. it, it automatically, it puts the sympathetic nervous system into action, the fight or flight response. What you're going to find is the things you do and how you react around that cold exposure mirrors very, very closely. There is huge parallels to how you will react to stressful situations in your life. And then once again, you want to talk about how do you learn about yourself? What do you like and what do you not like? If you bring awareness and intention to these things in the ice bath or the cold shower, and then you bring that awareness into your, into your daily life, you're going to say, wow, they're different, right? So how do I practice getting better? Well, you practice those behaviors into the cold exposure, whatever they may be. So good. I appreciate the endorsement. It is absolutely foolproof and it's a great leadership tool uh, just to get better. Yeah. 
and it and it's a safe environment to practice and to see your, your shortcomings versus blowing something up at work or in the kitchen. You know? <laughs> That's right. There's zero consequence. You yeah. can keep practicing all you want in private and just, you know, live in your own private hell as you're seeing the things that you don't like, but you can get, also get better pretty quickly. Yeah, that's funny. A frozen hell. I've never. Yeah, that's, good. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I got a couple more questions for you, Errol. I'm I'm really really enjoying this. So, who has had the greatest impact on your leadership, and why were they so impactful? Well, I can name a bunch of people who have influenced me. What I truly remember are the things they did, and so that means there's a bunch of people who have influenced me. Like, there's usually one or two things a leader has done. I'm like. I have absolutely got to implement that somehow, right? And I've already shared a couple with you, right? My, my commanding officer in the SEAL teams, mm-hmm. when he did that, right? Now, he was a great leader all the way around, but that moment was so inspirational for me, okay? When I was in the FBI, there was another guy I worked for, and I was, you know, I, I took risks. You know, I like taking their calculated risks. I, I miss the gene about being embarrassed for failure, right? That, that's, I feel like that's a gift sometimes. A lot of people don't have that. And I worked for a guy who said, Errol, you do what you do. And you have my back because I know you plan. I know you're thoughtful around these risks you take. And don't you worry about anybody except for me because I will cover you. Okay. And that doesn't mean I will cover you in a bad way. It means I won't let all the negative influence that people are going to have around your plan touch you. Man, he was a great leader in many other aspects. But boy, I, that's just something that inspired me. And that's always something you say, you know, protect your people and things like that. But he did it. I know he did it. And that inspired me. You know, my dad, way back when I was a kid, you know, playing hockey, I was six years old and I was the captain of my team. And he just asked me, what are you going to say to the boys? And I remember, like, I was six. I'm like, what do you mean? And he just said, you're the leader. You're the captain. They expect to hear from you. That that just never left me. You know, the idea that you are the captain, you're the leader, they expect to hear from you. So that's kind of what I came to when it came to what inspired me, who inspires me. There are a lot of people who do great things. And the great part about that, I don't even need to like the person on a whole, but even the person I don't like. And let's see politicians, right? They're all over the place. I can at least say, I can't stand that person. But they did this thing. And that was pretty inspiring in spite of what I feel about them personally. So from that standpoint, I'm able to get a lot out of a lot of different people. So that's kind of how I view that. It's helpful. What was the most surprising lesson uh, you learned about yourself in, in the writing of this book? Well, here's the first thing. I will never criticize another book as long as I live. Because mm-hmm. if somebody's got the stones to put it on paper and put it out there, then they deserve the credit whether we like the book or not. So that's the first thing, a, a true sense of humility. So that was the first thing that I learned that if, if I didn't have the humility already in that area, I got it quickly. The second that I learned was how hard it is to put your thoughts on paper, right? And, and that if you, ha- you can have them in your mind, but they're not fully formed until you write them down. And that's why people, you know, that's why writing your goals down, that's why writing down what you're going to do. It's not, it's not a technique, it's reality. Uh, It took me a long time to really put my thoughts on paper. So what I learned was, while in my very being, in my heart and soul, I knew and I know what's important to me until I could put it down on paper. I really wasn't able to articulate it. 
so those were a couple of things that I learned writing the book. Anybody should give it a shot. You'll, you'll learn a lot about yourself. That's good. So, uh, Errol, I, I would love for you to leave, uh, you know, the listeners with some encouragement. So it's up to you, sir. Uh, what would you like to leave us all with? What I leave to anybody else out there is awareness. Awareness, awareness, awareness. Awareness around your emotions. Awareness around how you're acting on those emotions. Awareness around how you want to act. If we go internal like that, then we're going to be better off. We're going to have massive influence on people because they're going to see us trying to figure it out from the inside out. And that may be cliche, but it doesn't mean it's wrong. Awareness allows you to reflect on yourself, how you're feeling, and how you want to be. So if we're going to, if you're looking for a place to start, start with the awareness. Don't beat yourself up. Be objective. It's not to judge. It's just to understand. So that's where I would leave people if I only had one thing to say, which I do. <laughs> well, that is really good advice. It's a great place for us to end this. Thank you again, Errol, not just for the time or the book, but uh, for the leadership lessons that you were courageous enough to put down on paper for our benefit, because uh, that, that does take a lot of vulnerability. So thank you, sir. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. Takeaway and action item. Takeaway. Awareness, awareness, awareness. As leaders, there are lots of non-fun things we don't want to know, or in my case, sometimes deal with, but we should. Relationships that need direct conversations, credit card statements that need analyzing, metrics of outbound phone calls and emails that need to be looked at, patterns in our speech or our attitude that could use an honest critique. Awareness, awareness, awareness. Action item. Here's the action item that I never thought I would give on this podcast. You ready? Take a cold shower. What if being shocked and uncomfortable with cold water could help save our credibility as leaders? Like a freezing cold seatbelt on the highway of life kind of a thing. I know that that's dumb, that's cheesy, but you get what I'm saying. It, it seems worth the discomfort behind the scenes for the benefit of those in our home and office. Now, if you take the challenge, let me know how it goes on LinkedIn or somewhere else on the internet. I'm going to start doing this weekly as well. I'm very intrigued by already, as you heard, doing it a few times. It was awful. It was awful, but we're in this together and I'm willing to do this if it's going to make me a better dad and a better leader at CCB. Coming up next time, I have Sarah Sloyan, Senior VP of Entree Leadership. I am so looking forward to that one. And we have dozens of other conversations that will aid in your growth as a leader. Two main ways that you can get them. You can go to ccbtechnology.com slash podcast, or if you're listening on your phone, just click that purple subscribe icon and you'll have access to all of the episodes just like magic. And if you liked what you heard, I have a simple ask. Send this to someone and give a written review in whatever platform you're using right now. We read all of them and it helps us reach more folks like you and make the podcast better. I can't wait to be with you again soon, but until then, from all of us at CCB Technology, thanks for listening.